things literary live at the root. I'm Danielle Belton, the Roots editor in chief, here with managing editor of the Glow Up, Maisha Kai. Hello, Saints. Maisha, today we have an amazing guest, the incredible, multi talented Alice Randall. Alice is the best selling author of When Done Gone, Rebel Yell, and Ada's Rules. And in addition to being a writer, Alice is also a food activist, a cookbook author, and an award-winning songwriter. Alice's latest novel, Black Bottom Saints, is a deep dive into Detroit's Black Bottom neighborhood, and we were so excited to talk to her about it. I mean, so excited. Uh, You may have noticed I I called our listeners saints today, and that was an homage to this book, because, you know, what she's done here... First of all, Alice Randall is like like one of my personal heroes. So She's everything. this was like super exciting for me. She's absolutely everything. And you know, I started out as a songwriter too. So I love this like multi-medium situation she has going because it, it, it speaks to me. It inspires me. And she's just an absolute delight. And this book is an absolute delight. Like it's the kind of book that you just want to turn to again and again. You can read it like an encyclopedia. You could just thumb to it through a chapter. I just, I just adore it so much. No, I definitely loved it too. It was amazing. And it was so fascinating to hear about all those saints. So with that, I think we should get into it. Let's do it. So hi, Alice. Welcome to It's Lit. I am so glad to be here with the two of you because I said Maxine Powell and all of my saints, they love a brainy beauty. And you two are brainy beauties, bringing it all for everybody. Oh. So I've been thrilled. I follow Well, as you. are you. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it. So, you know, having you with us today is pretty remarkable for us, as is your most recent book, Black Bottom Saints. And we're going to dig into it in a minute. But first... Since this is It's Lit, a podcast about Black books and Black writers, we like to break the ice with each of our guests with a little question. Name at least one book or books, because some people can't name more, you know, naming one is really, really hard. But a book that was life-changing, life-affirming, life-altering, blew your mind, changed your perception of what a book can be. Book, what was that book for you? Here are two. One is really simple. The Color Purple. Alice Walker, when she started (laughs) writing to God and finding the roots of my book are in that book. And as you know, she's talking about child abuse. And Mm -hmm. I write about abuse. I experienced child abuse as a child. And so reading that book and it orienting me to focus on the beauty in the world despite and that how you rise up by telling your own story that changed everything for me. And Zora Neale Hurston's Their Eyes Are Watching God also meant so much to me. I married my second husband because he reminded me of tea cake. <laughs> but I will say that um, even her description of trees, of Black and fem- uh, women's friendship. So those are two that I could find some obscure things, but the real is The Color Purple. Yes. And Their Eyes Are Watching God. I reread those books every year, but I they're in my mind even if I don't reread them. <laughs> yeah. That's excellent, excellent. Very good choices. So the reason I, we wanted to say um, why we find it so remarkable to have you with us is that you are by far the most versatile guest we've hosted on its list. 
To date, you have written five acclaimed novels, one of which was your best-selling debut, The Wind Done Gone, an unauthorized parody of Gone with the Wind. Very necessary. But you started your career (laughs) as a songwriter. In fact, you were the first Black woman to pin a number one country hit recorded by Trisha Yearwood, which you later adapted as a television movie. You've even collaborated <laughs> with your daughter and fellow writer, Caroline Randall Williams, on an NAACP Image Award winning cookbook, Soul Food Love. With all that in mind, somehow you've managed to blend all of these mediums in your latest novel, Black Bottom Saints, which is also a historic chronicle and tribute to a deeply significant site of Black American history and the Great Migration and the figures who influenced it. You framed it as a Saints Day book, 52 tributes told through vignettes. For the uninitiated, what is a Saints Day book and how did this project come to life for you? Well, first of all, again, thank you for appreciating those different channels I'm working on. You left out that children's book, our Black fairy tale princess, B.B. Oh. Bright. Can't leave her. You know what? <laughs> but how. You're right. We can't. Apologies for that. And we also can't leave out that your daughter, who we mentioned, is a member of this year's Route 100. So <laughs> yes, because Mama is my most important job, even though she's grown. <laughs> so about the Saints Day book. One, Ziggy Johnson, the real person, was actually a Black Catholic. And I think that people, one of the stories in Black life that gets erased is particularly a Black women Catholic movements. And so I wanted to honor that and note that, that we're not all, although many of us are Baptist, we're not all AME. Some of us are Lutheran. Some of us are Catholic. And Black Catholics have played an important role in American life and through Ziggy play a determinant role in Black arts life in Detroit. So he was a cradle-to-grave Catholic, and he would have known Saints Day books. I also love the idea a Saints Day book is a book of virtue. But my book is not about obvious virtues. Some of these people like Scatterbrain are people who others see as troubling and don't focus on their virtues. We don't have to be perfect to be virtuous. So I wanted to do a radical and real book of virtues, the deep virtues of generosity, of community spirit. So that's why a Saints Day book, and it's a Black form that isn't recognized as a Black form, And it relates to things going back to Chaucer's Canterbury Tales or Spoon River Anthology. But essentially, it's 61 profiles, 61 toasts of extraordinary Black lives. No, that's... So it's... Right. It's told over... I said 52 tributes. I guess we said... uh, But it's... It is really... Over yeah, it was 52, 52 weeks. weeks. Like it was supposed year. to be 52 right. tributes okay. you're picking up, but mm. I couldn't drill down. You hear me? I'm too talking. I couldn't limit it to 52 <laughs> try as I may. So I had to add some movable feast in it. So ah, it ends up being 61. Yes. And it's really hard to see because Eartha Kitt is hiding in another chapter and a couple yes. of saints. <laughs> and like is, Dinah Washington sneaks in, like all these people you know, sneak in there. Because it's not it's safe true. for us to be up front. We've got to come in the back door <laughs> to have our shelter. And so that's real too. I mean, I love that you said that about Catholicism because I grew up Catholic. So, you know, for me, that like totally like and especially because you, you you know, 
you involve some Chicago Catholicism in there, which is how I grew up. I was like, this is like my life. <laughs> this is it right here. I mean, I'm not practicing at this age, but I love that that's, that's how this was framed. It really, that Well, if you're living life well, because one thing the Catholic and Black Catholic experience will tell you, which I say about Ziggy, he learned in that church a five cents address to joy. The touch, the taste, the sight, the sound, the scent of joy. And he saw it first in a church, but then he found it in the clubs and in the cocktails that he changed that chasuble silk of the pre of the priest into his silk jackets. And Diana Washington has have it in her silk dresses. So, and the taste and the smoke, the incense becomes uh, cigarettes and all the rest. But so there's the sacred secular and you're well prepared for that with the Catholic childhood. <laughs> <laughs> That's beautiful. That's beautiful. Definitely, definitely. So, and we have the focus of joy this month. Yes, yes. This month is all about black joy. <laughs> this month of February, we're recording right now. Yes. Well, that's the main theme of this novel. Joy is radical, and black joy is even more radical. Exactly. It truly is. Love is the strut. Hate is the stumble. Mm. So there's nothing, yeah, more radical than when Black people choose to love themselves and each other and live their lives. Because that's not, that was not why we were brought here. No, and we start with all this real trauma that our experience of being kidnapped, of enslaved, Mm -hmm. the Middle Passage, of being raped in the slavery period and in the Nadar period, in the Jim Crow South, over and over at our workplaces. All of these things, these are history of trauma economic oppression, but we can get, and we do get sometimes, from trauma to transcendence. And that's what this book is all about. The things the saints have in common, every one of them, that's not true, most of them, all of them except the saints of fall, get from trauma to transcendence. They get to joy. Mm. The saints of summer do it best. They get to pure thrive and take a lot of people with them. The saints of fall, like Tanya Blanding, who gets killed in her own home at four years old in 1967, shot down by Michigan State troopers. You can't get from trauma to transcendence if someone kills you in your own home when you're four years old and 40 pounds. So we can't all get to joy, and we have to note that and fight for that. But our joy is radical and... The other saints are all trying to figure out how to get there and even hope that maybe some kind of way, Tanya Blanding in her own mind, despite the horror perpetrated on her, not minimizing that, that in her own imagination, she found some transcendence in that moment of being violated. The same way George Floyd gave a one-word story when he said, Mama, He was saying, Mm -hmm. I am a human being, and anyone who doesn't recognize that is not human. In that one-word story he told as he died, he captured the world's imagination. He told his truth. And let us, you know, so this is all about people who fight to get from trauma to transcendence, to joy despite. It's not easy. I call it hard-won joy. Yes. But we rise from the ashes a lot of times, a lot of days. Well, you know, we, we're a bunch of phoenixes. And as a book that I read was titled, you know, you have to burn first. 
before you can rise again. So yes. Um, so this novel, you know, debuted last August, but it really feels relevant to be talking about it during Black History Month because it's not only a historical chronicle, but one in which the Great Migration features pretty heavily. So Maisha and I are both from the Midwest. She's from Chicago. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, and both feature heavily here. And we're both products of migration stories like the ones that coalesced in Detroit's Black Bottom. Clearly, a lot of research went into Black Bottom Saints, which you've called your strongest and most important novel. But these are also stories based on real influential figures, like you mentioned Joseph Ziggy Johnson. Is sharing these anecdotes, you know, he's sharing these anecdotes from his deathbed. So why was Ziggy the ideal narrator for you? Ziggy was the ideal narrator to me, one, because he was a son of the Great Migration. His family, his mother had migrated up from Mississippi to Chicago. And that's such an important story. But why the real Ziggy was a man who wore three, three hats. He wrote for the Michigan Chronicle, a black newspaper. He ran and owned a center city dance school for black kids from all walks of life in Detroit for the doctor's children to the numbers runner's children and everything in between. And he was an MC at two of the hottest clubs in Detroit for a long time. That was a flame show bar. And for then it was a 20 grand. So what I liked about when I used to think you asked that question at the beginning, who inspired you want to be a writer? What were the two books that it changed my life? Who inspired me to want to be a writer was Ziggy Johnson. I've wanted to be a writer since I was three years old. And the only writer I knew when I was three years old toddling into the Ziggy Johnson School of the Theater was Ziggy Johnson, who was typing a little typewriter and publishing every week in the Michigan Chronicle. And my father read those columns aloud to me before I could read myself. I learned to oh, read wow. reading wow. him. But then I go into his dancing school. And unfortunately, I had a very challenging mother. I had an abusive mother. Ziggy put these stories in front of us. He never taught me how to dance, but he taught me how to move from trauma to transcendence as did sort of my father. I sort of had two mothers, and they were both men. <laughs> my daddy and Ziggy, like Sammy Davis, who had two fathers. So that's so Ziggy was important to me to honor because he had taught me to move from trauma to transcendence and inspired me to want to be a writer. And I couldn't even find anything. I knew he had been so influential, and almost nothing had been written about him. Wow. Nothing. Wow. Well, you definitely do him a service here because, like, you really bring him to life for us. You know, this this character, and he's larger than life, and all these people that he encounters. I mean, it's so. As I said, I mean, I think it's magical. <laughs> you know, it's it's aspirational, and and you know, I know this book is supposed to be technically a novel, but you know, as Danielle noted, it's so much more. You know, it. At, at one point, you describe Joe Lewis's boxing because Joe Lewis is in this, right? <laughs> as art and church at the same time. And, you know, as you also described, that it's really sacred in many ways, that this book is really the same thing. You know, um, it's mythical and it's lyrical and even literally a bartender's Bible as well. And it's also, as you, you know, kind of just alluded to, it's also a bit of memoir thrown in there because you're also a character in this book, correct? Well, there's a certain resemblance I have to Color Girl. <laughs> okay. Okay. Because I mean, like I, you know, as somebody who has followed your work for many years, I, you know, I'm one of those people who read The Wind and Gone because I, I grew up on Gone with the Wind. I'm one of those Black people who read Gone with the Wind 
from cover to cover and know that story well. So, of course, I had to read The Wind Then Gone. And so I followed you ever since. I'm a huge fan. <laughs> so I was like, oh, there are echoes of this character, of your story in this character. And I guess, you know, it frames the story in a really, really, I think, heartening way. And so why were you compelled to include those elements in this in this otherwise kind of, you know, collection of vignettes? Well, one, I believe that reading is necessary. It's how I keep saying. I'm not just a writer, I'm a reader. And I love those books that help me. I say, you make sane like you make a bed every day. You got to get <laughs> like you clean a house. It's every day. It's not something you make and it stays. To me, reading is part of my secular sacred practice. So I want to write texts that can actually help people. And one of the things I wanted to narrate in sharing Colored Girl's story is that you can, we don't all get good mothers. Every one of you who has a good mother mm-hmm. is very, very fortunate, whether she's a biological mother you were born with or the auntie or the person in the neighborhood. Sometimes some of us get really hard mothers. There are other people who've written about that, but it particularly in Black literature, doesn't get it written about that much. And I knew when I was looking for a story that told that, there are all kinds of stories about men who are abusive and stepfathers. The idea of a mother who didn't really love me, which goes from Wendang Gone. Senora thinks that Mammy doesn't love her. But she discovers in Wendang Gone, I wrote the fantasy that I wanted, which is that her mother really did love her and she just didn't know. And her mother pretended not to love her to protect her. That was a fantasy mm. for me. That was a fantasy I wanted. It took me 50 years of living and 10 years of writing to get to this story where I could tell the real story and the Betty Stanley character also have compassion for a mother who was so beat down by racism that she couldn't love her own Black self or her own Black child. That racism sometimes gets internalized that way. But we don't talk about that. Whereas on the other hand, my father, and I am not agreeing with this, I had a father who, as far as I know, never thought one white woman or child was attractive. He just did not believe it. I have no evidence that he ever thought that there were any attractive white people. I don't agree with that. I don't think that is right. But it was very protective of my young ego. My father was, I know, he would always, I've had... uh, breast cancer and my hair ended up getting straighter, but I've never straightened my hair. And I, and he would pat my hair and want it curly, say, Kiki, just like a lamb. Jesus had hair just like a lamb. Nobody wanted, he didn't want straight hair. He told me that blue and green eyes were, I I won't even go into it, but it was nothing you wanted. I can't even tell you on the podcast what he said about blue and green eyes. And he loved my dark eyes. You know, you want eyes dark as night. But so the point is, <laughs> I wanted to share a colored girl story because I wanted to say that we can get from trauma to transcendence and we can have compassion. By the time I was writing Betty Stanley, I had a lot of compassion for what she was up against. And that was, mm-hmm. um, and I actually am really at peace with my mama. I'm at peace with her. Mm-hmm. I don't appreciate how she treated me, but I'm at peace with her. She's deceased now. But. So I wanted to share a colored girl story. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? 
Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. You know, among these major figures that you feature is uh, Thomas Bullock, right? Who was the first Black bartender to publish a cocktail book, The Ideal Bartender, which you can still get on Amazon. <laughs> and this is like a treasure, you know. Uh, but amid all this history, you did something with this book that is, was really current and forward thinking. And, you know, I don't know if it was you or your your publishers, but obviously you, you went along with it, um, which was to partner with Jack Daniels, uh, Gentleman Jack to cross promote this novel as part of their 2020, uh, their 2020 culture Shakers series. And this is a new model. You know, we're seeing this a lot with different products, but it's definitely a new model for writers and we're seeing more of it. Why was this in particular appealing to you? Like this kind of collaboration? It was appealing to me for multiple reasons, but one is it was time that Bricktop, Black woman born in West Virginia, and Thomas Bullock get their due. And I was thrilled that Gentleman Jack was willing to give me that big stage. I'm the nerdy intellectual woman sitting home writing novels, taking seven years to research them, who barely is on Twitter and Instagram, literally. (laughs) And they had a platform and were willing to honor these Black makers and really important the um, Gentleman Jack Culture Shaker in Detroit is a person called Asher Miller. By collaborating with them, I was able to tell them that Detroit was the epicenter of American, not just Black, cocktail culture in the 20th century. People didn't know that. By collaborating with them, consulting with them, I was able to inform them of that reality. And they were excited by that reality and immediately said, we've got to have a Detroit bartender in this mix. But if you don't know this history, that at once upon a time when the factories were going 24-7, the show bars, the taverns, the corner bars, the blind pigs were going 24-7 too. And in Detroit, many of these were Black-owned. That's what's even different with Harlem and in Bronzeville. In Harlem, there are much higher percentage of Black-owned bars and restaurants in Detroit's Black Bottom. And so they could go to an all-Black aesthetic. And for example, as you just mentioned, Thomas Bullock publishes his book in 1917. This is the beginning of the Great Migration. So all the Black bartenders shaking up cocktails in 1930 in Detroit They got Bullock's book. I have known about Thomas Bullock way before he was in vogue because I grew up in Detroit. I grew up in a black Detroit where my father took me to the bars, sat me up at bar stools all the time. I was a little girl toddling into a bar. And if he wanted to get in a quick shot, he would set me outside in the car in front of bars so long. The first word I ever spelled out was, Daddy, don't go in that (laughs) B-A-R from the neon sign. (laughs) because <laughs> I did so he took me in yeah. <laughs> he did not get a drink he took me in the bar 
But in 1924, Bricktop, one of my saints, opened her first bar in Paris. Mm -hmm. In 1943, she opened one in Mexico City. 1945, she opens one in Rome. That was in Ziggy's column. So I am thrilled to work with Gentleman Jack because I can get this message out to a small number of people who read Black Bottom Saints through this Culture Shaker program. And I'm thrilled they actually have come up with a Black Bottom Saint signature drink for book clubs. We are shaking. We can get that message out that actually the preeminent American bartenders are two Black people, Thomas Bullock and Bricktop. And Bricktop was a global influence. This program celebrates Black and brown bartenders. This is not something new. And Jack Daniels gives it that spotlight. Yes. So I was thrilled. And, you know, I, as a writer, I went to Harvard. I have, I'm very proud. I have an honorary doctorate from Fisk University. But, you know, my father went to one semester of college. My grandparents, who I loved, great storytellers, my grandfather couldn't read or write at all. My grandmother wrote, read letter, his letters to him. I narrated myself the audio for When Done Gone. This will almost make me tear up. I don't like to perform, but because I knew I wanted my book, even for people who couldn't read. There was no budget for it. And I sat alone and read out that book from cover to cover because my grandfather couldn't read. And my grandmother read Gone with the Wind because someone had read it to her and she had hated that book. She thought it was full of lies, but she listened to all of it. And she talked about how much she hated that book. So I wanted to make sure I have this deck of cards right here that I work with Jimmy James Green from, he is up in Harlem, to translate every chapter of my book into a collage portrait. Because I wanted this available for people who don't have strong reading skills. These stories belong Mm. to everybody. I wanted these decks of cards to be in people who are incarcerated, people who are in schools who, I believe language lives in air and on paper, and both are to be honored and in working together. I've never written for just one kind of over-intellectualized person. My ideal reader is my dead grandmother. Mm, That's profound. Your story about your grandparents was just so touching. I mean, my, neither of my grandfathers could read or write either on both sides of my family. In both cases, they, they married women who could read and read to them. And so that was just very touching. And I want to thank you for sharing that story with us. Um, mm-hmm. But to pivot a little bit, you know, the phrase black bottom, while not new, has obviously been on all our lips you know, this past year as following the release of your book was the release of the film adaptation of Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. As you note in Black Bottom Saints, this is a phrase that has meaning in several regions of the United States as a neighborhood, a dance, a song, all synonymous with Black culture. How would you characterize the mystique of the Black Bottom? Audacious commitment to joy and Black swagger. Black joy and Black aesthetics. Because that dance was a Black (laughs) version, a Black and better version of the Charleston. So it is a commitment. The Black bottom is a celebration of dynamic Black space, Black movement, kinetic orality, Black body pride. So, Mm. So one, that space. 
in Detroit, it's a river, black riverside neighborhood, but there was a black bottom in Nashville. Zora Neale Hurston put that in an early work. Many communities call their black space black bottom. None of them as significantly as Detroit. Then there is that dance, which is going to come up in the mid twenties. And then Ma Rainey's black bottom is an August Wilson play, as you all know. The connection to my black bottom is Lloyd George Richards, who will be born in Detroit start off life as a shoeshine boy. Father dies when he's young. Mother is a domestic servant who wakes up one morning blind. He will rise from being that shoeshine boy supporting his mother to the dean of the Yale School of Drama. But before that, he's going to be the first director of Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun on Broadway. This boy who turns a man from Black Bottom. And he's going to discover August Wilson and produce a lot of those plays, including this Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Isn't that wild? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, the connections are, here are so beautiful. And you, you, I mean, you're really mining this incredibly rich cultural history that I just want to like revisit again and again and again and again. But, I, you know, I, I, I don't think we can talk about this without also re- referencing your own personal history, which is also very layered and complex. I mean, you're related by marriage to the Harlem Renaissance poet, Arna Bontem, and you credited his his widow, Grandma Bonton, with encouraging you to become a novelist. You were already a writer and, and encouraging you to write novels. But then conversely, you are also a direct descendant of Edmund Pettus. Those are both which truly is, true and complicated. I mean, that's wild. Like, you know, that's very complicated. You know, we're talking about this former Confederate general and Ku Klux Klan Grand Dragon for whom that infamous bridge of Bloody Sunday is named and may be renamed soon. You know, how do you, you know, standing at that intersection of history and that intersection of heritage, like how do those legacies inform your work? Well, one is, you know, my father, as I told you, did not like white people at all. I always say it came from, it was very intimate because he hated his own grandfather, Edmund Pettus. My father, when people Mm -hmm. weren't talking about having Confederates in the family, My father was talking about that when Bloody Sunday happened. I remember that day because, of course, my father was very, he's a political black man, big supporter of Malcolm X. He was very aware of what was going down in Selma and that that bridge. So my father's hatred of white culture was personal because his own grandfather, Edmund Pettus, had not taught his own father, my father's son, we called him, to read or write and didn't allow anyone else to teach him to read or write where he was an incredibly educated man. So my father's passionate feeling about this, about white culture, came from that experience of how he was treated, how his father was treated by his white family. I will never forget that when my grandfather died, I think it was about ninth grade, some of the white family wrote to my father. My father let me read the letter once and he burnt it up in front of me in a candle. One of those candles you use to get the lucky number for betting the number. He, in a pillar candle, he burned it up. He said, my father couldn't write his story. I'm not, the white record doesn't get to be the record. That some of what they're saying is lies. This stuff, well, that's how they saw it. He would touch my head, jump on it. He said, you remember what your son, that's what he called him. You remember what Papa, what son told you. And so part of what I've done 
in my novels is to create fictional records where our records don't exist to acknowledge we cannot let the words on paper. The state of Georgia at one point said that Grandma Baltal, what didn't exist, wasn't alive. When I went to take her, because when she was born in Waycross, Georgia, they didn't keep records of Black births in the country side. So some young woman, white woman, is looking at me with Grandma Baltal standing beside me, and she literally let the words come out of her mouth. You don't exist. So my point being, that was hard. It was really exciting, although the empowered Black people and Papa and Son and Dear, they have empowered me. My Black family from Alabama has empowered me. Mirroring into this very fancy Harlem Renaissance family, uh, I literally was on bed rest in Grandma Bonton's house, waiting for my daughter. I'm in her house right now. I slept in Arna Bonton's library and typed on Langston Hughes's typewriter because Langston left his typewriter to grandpa when he died. And it was in his library. I set up a bed. I was on bed rest for something like seven months. I moved right into Arna's library. So I was getting to read things that Jimmy Baldwin had written to him, Zora Neale letters. I would just go through his files because he had had a heart attack stroke one day. And so Grandma had always left his library just the way it was the day he died. And she let me, since I was waiting for her great-grandchild, to sleep in there. And she told me I was going to be a writer because she had never got, she wanted to do that. And she had never got a chance to be that. She had been the wife of and only published four, four poems. So yes, she encouraged me and she told me, sometimes you'll be doing your best work where you're just sitting looking out the window. She gave me all that space to tell my story. No, oh, that's incredible. So, I mean, you have so many great stories. Yes, you do. Like, I could literally listen to you talk forever <laughs> and just tell stories from our past. I, I know you want to just sit at her feet. Yeah, and just I, just, like... I just want to absorb. I just want to take it all in. Um, Me too. But we're winding down, so I only have one more question. So one of the lines that resonated with me most in Black Bottom Saints is from your chapter on the vaudeville entertainers, Butterbeans, and Susie. In which you write, quote, find a way to let your audience love you. Find that for them and you'll help find them a way to love themselves, end quote. At its heart, it seems to be a still relevant comment on how much representation matters to a group of people who don't always see themselves presented lovingly. I like to think that's some of what we do here at The Root, but as a writer who has continually centered Blackness in her work, why is this vital to you? First, you're going to make me tear up and cry because that's one of my favorite lines in the book. And no one has pulled that out. You are the first interview I have been on (laughs) since August 18th. Butterbeans and Susie are the heart of the book for me. Mm. That's an incredible chapter. And what you just said is the center project of all my writing. To find a way for me to help my audience love themselves. And in this case, it wasn't to have them love me. It was to love each of the people in these profiles or to find one they could love, one Black person they could love and use that person as a bridge to loving themselves more profoundly. And I would do anything the way Butterbeans and Susie were willing to do that itch dance, this or that, the other. They'd do anything to help their audience love themselves. I love that. They talked about one really important performance, and that's all research when they came and performed in a time 
when Black Detroit was really down in the 40s, so much unemployment, so much brutality, so much white supremacy at walk in their world. And Butterbeans and Susie came in and they let them know that their get up and go, their self-respect was not in Mr. Ford's factory. It was not any white control. It was in their hips and in their own lips and in their children's eyes. And that they, because they saw Butterbeans finding it in Susie and Susie finding it in Butterbeans. They modeled it and it was contagious. What I hope people feel in this book is wall to wall, my love and respect of good black people, of black lives, and they don't have to be squeaky clean for me to love them. That's why scatterbrains in there, a lot of complicated people in there. But this, it is all about finding a way as an artist to help people love themselves and help other people love and respect black culture. For my white readers, I want them to come out of this saying, oh, say her name is not something new. Tanya Blanding got killed in 67. I could give you some people before that. That scatterbrain shouldn't have been a heroin dealer. But you know what also shouldn't have happened? That white mafia Don should not have been allowed to shoot him down in his car with the protection of the local police. That just because he was a heroin dealer, he didn't deserve a death sentence without a trial. That all black lives matter. And so I love, and though I love my Sididi sister, Sadie Pryor, I wish we had time to talk about some, but it is a love letter to the city of Detroit. And I wouldn't want to leave without saying this right now to everybody who's joining with you. All of America and everybody who loves democracy anywhere in this world need to give thanks to the women of Detroit, the Black women of Detroit, the Black people of Detroit, the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren of Black Bottom, literally, who put Michigan on their shoulders and turned America to a better direction by delivering 17 electoral votes and putting Kamala Harris and Joe Biden in office. That was 85% voting. That That was Black Bottom in action. That is, and you see it in Philadelphia and Atlanta. This election was delivered by Black people who knew the importance of this moment and found a way to love and reform a democracy that hasn't loved us. That's some profound love, and we deserve some profound joy. (laughs) We do, we do. And this is so apropos for us to be having this conversation of this Month is Black Joy Month for us at the root every day of this month. We're chronicling something that gives us joy. And Alice, yeah. you have given me and Maisha so much Woo! joy. I like moved to tears. You are so... Tears of joy. I'm like literally sitting here. You are like. so incredible. Like this whole discussion was amazing. Thank you so much for joining us here. Thank you for being in community. You guys give me joy. Being in community, being held. To be in an interview with two Black women who are culture makers. We talked about the culture shaker. You guys are culture makers and you're the curators. I had to live this long to see. The the fact that the gatekeepers now look like my daughter, look like my family, look like, I can't tell you how much that means to me. And two women from the Midwest ascendancy. And thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you.
So Brit Presents It's Lit is produced by myself, Maisha Kai, and Michaela Heck. Our sound engineer is Ryan Allen. And special thanks on this episode to Sarah Chishti. If you like the show and want to help us out, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It really helps other people find the show. And if you have any thoughts or feedback, you can find me on Twitter at Black Snob or on Instagram at Belton Danielle. And you can find me at Maisha on Twitter. That's M-A-I-Y-S-H-A and at Maisha Kai on Instagram. So before we go, we always like to talk a bit about what we're currently reading. Maisha, what are you getting into these days? Apparently I'm getting into everything because I'm knocking things down. But (laughs) (laughs) I just uh, received a book called Josephine Baker's Cinematic Rhythm. And I haven't gotten into it yet, but I'm looking forward to it because I'm a huge Josephine Baker fan. I actually just got some exciting news. Ruth Nega, who just did Passing and who did Loving, is going to play Josephine Baker in an upcoming limited series. So, you know, it's, it's, it's that time. And I think, like, honestly, Alice Randall got me in the mood for this because <laughs> Josephine Baker also features in Black Bottom Saints. So, you know, it's a mood. It's a motion. The 20s are back. Let's do it. I don't think the 20s actually ever go anywhere. But anyway, what are you reading, Danielle? I'm currently rereading Charles M. Blow's memoir, Fire Shut Up in My Bones. Mm. What are you getting from it this time? You know, like I'm reading it because I'm writing my own memoir and I'm trying to figure out what I'm doing wrong because I keep failing. (laughs) I've written like eight drafts of the first chapter and each of them suck. So what I'm noticing is just like the narrative flow, how he just really draws you in. And I wonder like, why, why, why can't I do the same? You know, I hear you though, but it's hard to write about yourself. And I'm, I'm, I'm going through the same process right now. So I totally get it. Cause I'm like, Ooh, am I just not self-effacing enough for this? <laughs> yeah, am I not interesting? I might not be interesting. I don't know guys. We'll find out in this journey as I write this book. And that's it for us this week. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll see you next week. In the meantime, keep it lit.